Today we're going to continue on in our series in Daniel, but I wanted to share a little bit of a story with you first. Uh, if you were at the men's breakfast yesterday, I talked a little bit about this. Um, but I've, I've talked about this in the past, too, so this, pro- this won't come as a surprise. And if you're new here and you don't know me, this probably won't come as, surprise, as a surprise to you as well. Um, when, I, when I was in high school, um, I was kind of a nerd. Uh, it's not very popular. Um, I was uh, very scrawny. Uh, my ears were always this size, but my head wasn't. Um, just not, not, I was not on the higher end of the status scale. Um, and, and when I got into high school uh, in my, my junior year, my best friend and I decided as a joke to run for student association president and vice president. We just thought it would be kind of funny. Um, so we hung up signs around the school that said, vote for Dave because tennis balls are fuzzy. Uh, we wrote like a stupid speech and, and delivered it. And uh, oddly enough, it went over like really well. Um, and I remember on the Friday, so, like we had to do the speech twice. Like we had to do it on Friday for the juniors and then on Monday for the sophomores. And I remember it went super well on Friday to the point where after school I'm at my locker and like cheerleaders are coming up to me going, we're going to vote for you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I, I remember calling my buddy that weekend and I said, hey, what do we do if we win? Like that was, that was, was not part of the plan. Um, and sure enough, we won. It was like this weird after-school special where I went from being the biggest dork to being one of the most popular kids in the school. Um, and I ran with that my senior year. All of a sudden, I had all these like new opportunities. People cared about who I was, and I had all these friends, and people were inviting me places. I had a girlfriend. That was new. Um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it was interesting because what ended up happening was life started to become all about me, Right? And I started to kind of recognize, I I started to get filled with a fear almost because I I started to think, you know, the reason I've got to where I've gotten is because I'm funny. Like, and so I I really need to always be funny. And that kind of became my identity because if I'm not funny, then I'm going to lose it all. Um, And so in that mentality, I actually started to become pretty depressed, uh, pretty insecure, pretty fearful. Um, and, and, but on the outside, it was all like, ha I'm funny. Um, and then I, I went to college, uh, I went to Syracuse University where I studied television, radio, and film because I wanted to write and be on Saturday Night Live. Like, that was my goal in life. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I went there and, you know, I went to church every Sunday, but that was only because, um, my, my girlfriend li- was still a senior in high school, so I would go home every weekend and I lived with my grandparents and so they made me go to church. Um, but, I was drifting further and further away from God because, once again, it was all about me. Like, how can I maintain this? And how can I create this this career that I wanted and these relationships? And, once again, just getting darker and darker. And it came to a point where God just had to break me down of all these things. You know, I was at a, I was at a camp meeting the day before my sophomore year of college, and God just convicted my heart. And I knew that there were things in my life that I was trying to control, and I needed to just give it all up. And sure enough, like, I go home uh, that night, I call my girlfriend, and we end up breaking up. Uh, then I go to Syracuse, or to, to my sophomore year of college, I'm studying television, radio, and film. I'm like, Lord, what ministry is there in that? Like, I can't become a televangelist, I don't have the hair. Um, so I just... <laughs> I had no idea. Um, but I ended up getting involved with, with Campus Crusade and, and just grew quite a bit. And so, honestly, the reason God had me at, at Syracuse was to, to kind of 
strip me of, of my hopes and dreams and goals that I was trying to accomplish myself um, and help me grow uh, in dependence on him. And so with all that, um, today we're, we're jumping into um, Daniel chapter 4. Um, and I, I want to kind of get into this before, before I open us in prayer. Um, just real quick, looking at verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, uh, I'll read this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And, and as I read some uh, different commentaries on this, it's interesting, People, there's people that like to argue whether or not this actually was originally meant to be the end of chapter 3, um, and if it's like connected that way. And, and i got to say, it, in my mind, it, it, it doesn't seem to, um, because it, 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 it seems to shift perspectives here in chapter 4. Um, and it also seems to have the appearance of what a royal letter would look like uh, back then. Because you've got, there's, there's an identification of uh, the writer being Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and he, he addresses it to all peoples, nations, and languages. And, and once again, as Anthony shared last week, um, this is a reversal from the beginning of chapter 3, where he calls all nations, languages, um, and peoples to bow before this idol. Um, now he's calling them all to hear about the Most High God. Um, there's, there's also a greeting in this where, where he says, Peace be with you. And what comes, what we're going to read, uh, indicates that this proclamation doesn't seem to be stemming directly from the circumstances in chapter 3, where God saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar says in this part, what the Most High God has done for me. So as we will see, Nebuchadnezzar is not praising God for being the revealer in chapter 2, and he's not praising God for being the rescuer in chapter 3. But Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter is bringing his praise to the Most High God because he's taught that God is the ruler. So let's pray. Lord, I just want to echo all the prayers that have already been lifted up. Um, Thank you so much for allowing us to be able to gather here and worship and praise. Lord, I pray um, that you would guide my words. Help us to have open hearts and uh, open ears. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with an intro to a chapter like this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually kind of given away the ending. Uh, you know, we don't know the story yet, but as, as we read it, we already know the outcome. And so to stick with that theme, I'm going to give away the point of this chapter and sermon just right up front. So get ready. Here's a spoiler. Uh, God is sovereign. Um, and to actually sum it up the way the author does in this chapter, the point is this, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And notice, that's in three verses in this chapter, which, uh, verse 17, 25, and 32. And when th- something is like repeated like this so blatantly, um, it's definitely the point that the writer is, is uh, driving home to us. And so, God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. What that basically is saying is that God is sovereign. Now, now that's a term that we use a lot, uh, especially those of us on the Reformed side of things. Um, honestly, it's, it's one of the things that has drawn me to this denomination. And, and while we may use the term a lot, it may be one of those things that we uh, often don't take the time to reflect on, on what it means. If we truly believe that God is sovereign 
then I believe it affects how we react to our circumstances. I believe that it answers some of the theological questions that we wrestle with. And I also believe it helps us understand his grace so much more. So what exactly does God's sovereignty mean? It means that he is in control of all things. He has authority over all things. It means that he has a covenant solidarity with his people or, or a presence with them. In a Psalm 103.19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In Isaiah 46.10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then finally, in Romans 13.1, he even talks about uh, earthly governments. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So all this is something that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to get. He's seen God work through Daniel's interpretations, and he's seen God rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fires. He even at times seems to acknowledge the power of God, but he's yet to understand his sovereignty. And that, that he's yet to understand that this is the God who oversees creation, oversees his people, and even oversees King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And I, I say that because, uh, that he doesn't get it, because back in chapter 3, verse 29, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaks of uh, what, what happened, uh, saving uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, uh, he references uh, God to be their God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not his God. Um, he also gives this decree that anyone who speaks against uh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb as if King Nebuchadnezzar needs to defend or avenge this God. Um, he doesn't seem to be the God of Nebuchadnezzar. He just seems to, to be to Nebuchadnezzar as one of many who does a really good job of saving his servants. You know, he even, in this chapter, he speaks uh, to his loyalty to his own gods when he points out that Daniel, is, his name is Belteshazzar, named after Nebuchadnezzar's God. Um, he even says that Daniel has a spirit of the gods, not of the God. And sadly, this is not uncommon today. Uh, people are okay with God as long as he's not the God. We want to have options so that we can form our gods to ourselves. And in doing so, aren't we actually just making us the God of our gods, in a sense? If there's only one God, what do we do when he does something we don't agree with? It would just be easier to find a God that does things we do agree with. And what do we do when, when we want our own way? If there's only one God, we wouldn't be able to find a God that's okay with everything we're okay with. So if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get God's sovereignty, then what has brought him to sing God's praises in verses 1 through 3? Well, in, in chapter 4, uh, or, or chapter 4, verse 4, we see that um, Nebuchadnezzar is in a time of prosperity. He's in a time where he's at ease. And uh, I'll read here the, this dream that he seems to have. Um, chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, says, The visions in my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so just, just as in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this weird and concerning dream. And once again, he calls these interpreters to him, and they're not able to give, give an answer. And, and I wonder if at some point, even if these uh, magicians and interpreters can't interpret the dream, one of them has to at least start asking Nebuchadnezzar if he's been eating weird things before bed or what his caffeine intake is during the day, because this is getting out of hand. Um, Daniel states in verse 22, when he gives the interpretation, that the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. And then he shares that the creatures whom the tree provides for represent the people under the care of his kingdom. Unfortunately, though, the tree has reached too high and is pretty full of itself. And this is why a watcher comes to have it cut down. Now, now most commentators agree that this watcher represents an angel who comes with authority from the Lord. And it appears that though the tree is destroyed, there's this stump that's, that's meant to remain. Uh, John Goldengay says, um, Nebuchadnezzar's monarchy is to be reflected in the flourishing of the tree of his dream, symbolic of the great cosmic provider and of his royal earthly embodiment. But the broken tree of the dream will reflect the dreamer's actually fragile position and perhaps his subconscious sense of that fragility. You know, the stump actually is kind of a representation of hope. It's a, it's a hope of life. You know, this is similar as what is said in, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, right? God shares that though the kingdom of Israel will fall, a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. You know, the purpose is not totally to abolish the tree, uh, but it will be left enough to learn the lesson that the living may know that the most high, high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So what does all this mean then for, for Nebuchadnezzar himself? Well, in verses 24 through 26, Daniel gives, gives an interpretation. He says, um, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And it, you'll notice that's not really like, that was pretty straightforward. Like he didn't really give, he actually kind of repeated to a degree what the dream was, which makes me wonder all these uh, magicians that couldn't, interpret it. It, it. Could they not, or did they not want to? Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar uh, in this dream is finding out that he needs to learn that he is not sovereign. And we come to verse 28. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so here we see Nebuchadnezzar taking a walk on his roof and taking a look around. And might I just say that between this story and that of King David, if you find yourself the king of some place, stay off your roof. And if you're there, don't look around. Um, bad things seem to happen. Anyway, from, from what I've read, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen some, some amazing accomplishments as he looked around, things that um, have kind of been accomplished under his watch. His palace from which he looked had large courts, reception rooms, and a beautiful throne room. He probably could see the hanging gardens that he created uh, for one of his wives. And, and this was like a, a vaulted terrace structure with an elaborate water supply for its trees and its plants. Um, the city had a 16-mile outer wall that was so wide it could fit um, chariots with multiple horses on it. There were streets paved with limestone, and there were statues of lions, dragons, and bulls. It was a magnificent view, but unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar had the wrong view of it. You know, we may not have the perceived accomplishments of King Nebuchadnezzar, but yet we all seem to have the same problem he does. We all struggle with sinful pride. You know, I was listening to a talk uh, by Tim Keller this week, and he says, sinful pride looks at all the things in life and says, I did it, and I'm do it for the glory of my majesty. It looks at the good things in your life and says, I did it, I accomplished it. That's by me. I worked harder than others to achieve it. The other side of pride that I don't think we always recognize as pride is the sense of, I deserve. Pride looks at life with a deep sense of oddness. So when things go badly, we look at life and say that things aren't fair. We say, I have it worse than others, but I deserve more than I have. Pride claims to be the author instead of being given a gift. Once again, Keller says, pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. So Nebuchadnezzar built stuff and conquered lands, and he took all the credit. Well, where, where, do we, uh, where are we in danger of this as individuals? Do we recognize that our careers, our families, our relationships, do we recognize that these things are all gifts from God? And, and where are we in danger of this as a church? You know, the things that we do in our community, the people of our congregation, uh, our building, God is behind all of these things. We're only here right now because God has ordained it. And then where are we in danger of this as a nation? You know, our freedoms, our prosperity, our opportunities. We did not create them, and we are by no means in control of them. These are all gifts. And, and since I, I brought that up, I do want to take a minute here to look at how Daniel interacts with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, before he gives the interpretation, we see this in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. You know, Daniel wasn't dismayed and alarmed because of the king. He was dismayed and alarmed for the king. Now, friends, I must confess that this sermon has been uh, very hard for me to wrestle with the last few days. Here I am trying to talk about the sovereignty of God, and he's in control of all things, and he's put governments and rulers in place. All the while, 
there's an atrocity happening across the globe in Ukraine. And to be honest, it feels almost glib for me to say these things, as there are people who are walking through chaos and pain as I speak. I wrestle with how the truth of God's sovereignty lines up with what appears to be going on in the world. And to be honest, I don't think it's, it's a bad thing to wrestle with that and to even be upset with it. The psalmist does it all the time. Um, Psalm 69, 1 through 3 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out of my throat, uh, with my crying out of my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And so you can see the, the psalmist is upset and he's bringing it to the Lord. But then later in that chapter, we see verses 22 through 25. He's talking about his enemies. Let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Well, that's blunt. Um, The Bible doesn't hide people's anger and pain, so I don't believe we should try to do so either. Notice, though, that what the psalmist is doing with his anger and his pain, he's bringing it before God to handle So we see in the Bible, especially Psalms like this, where we're called to wrestle with our circumstances and and even be upset with them. But in that, we're supposed to bring all of it before our sovereign Lord. And yet here in in verse 19, we we have this interesting picture of Daniel with a tyrant. Uh, Once again, John Goldingay says, Daniel invites readers to care about people in power, even people who abuse power, to to appeal to their humanness, not their sinfulness and to treat them as people given a responsibility by God and people who may respond to right and wrong. So this is where I've wrestled. In light of this, how are we to handle situations like what's going on in Ukraine or when things don't seem right with the leaders in our own country? I I don't think the message here is to suck it up because God's in control. I do believe the answer is that no matter what you're wrestling with, just don't leave God out of it. If he's sovereign, then he's the only one who we can bring our hurt, our fears, and our confusion to. And and notice um, in verse 27, Daniel actually goes beyond the interpretation of the dream. Uh, He goes on to give some advice. Now, the king didn't ask for this, but Daniel goes on to do it. And he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You know, this isn't something that Daniel made up. Um, This is what is true of God. Uh, In Jeremiah 18, God says that if any kingdom he declares judgment on turns from its evil, then he will relent of the disaster that he intended to do. You know, Daniel was bold and honest, yet he was respectful to the king. He didn't start a social media campaign against Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't write any witty or biting tweets. He didn't even create any dank memes. Um, <laughs> none of you got that, sorry. <laughs> he told the king, if you want to repent of your pride, humble yourself and build others up. Turn from sin and use the power God has given you to show mercy to the oppressed. Lower yourself and build others up. So there's a real tension between standing for what is right 
and loving leaders well, even the evil ones. You know, we have a picture of Daniel and his friends throughout this book. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a horrible tyrant. He killed, he destroyed, and he enslaved. He ruled with fear and was unfair, yet Daniel has concern for him. And as I've mentioned, this is an interesting time to be delivering this sermon. You know, for this conflict in Ukraine, what does it mean to stand up for what's right? Obviously, for us in the U.S., it looks different than our brothers and sisters who are in Ukraine. For us, you know, I wonder, we can, we can kind of, we have people, even in this congregation, it was mentioned earlier, the IDs, um, who have lived in Ukraine and have, have a ministry there in close contact. You can follow them on social media. Uh, I know John's been posting a lot of updates, and he's even been giving uh, links and, and places where you can, you can tangibly help. Um, you can go to, to Mission to the World's website and see um, areas where we can, we can help. Um, we can maybe reach out to any Ukrainian people in our community to see what needs they may have or how we can come alongside them as they walk um, through this pain. And what does it look like to pray for, the, for Ukrainian people? Well, we can pray for those who now are now refugees having fled their homes. We can pray for the workers who are receiving and assisting them. We can pray for those who are defending their land, their nation. And what does it look like to pray for Putin? I don't know. Um, I think it's fine to pray that Putin not succeed, that he fail. But the prayer can also be that his heart would change, that he'd be convicted of his sins, that he would seek righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed. In all of this, let us put our hope and trust in the sovereign God not as a platitude or as an excuse for complacency, but as our foundation as we engage with all these things going on in the world around us. So, going back to Nebuchadnezzar now, what happens with him? Well, in verse 33, we see immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar is brought down to the level of an animal. He's taken from the highest place and brought to the lowest place. He goes from the king's food in chapter 1 to the grass of the field. And this is actually something that pride does to you, although maybe not in as extreme a way presented here. It, it does make you like an animal. Once again, Keller says, you know, pride makes you unable to empathize with people. It's driven by ego survival instincts makes you compare and hate looking bad. Like a scared animal, we run from people or situations that threaten our ego. And this is all because of sinful pride. Now, I feel the need to point out that this isn't a commentary on mental health. In this particular circumstance, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar's pride to drive him to madness in order to point him to humility and an understanding of God's sovereignty. So Nebuchadnezzar is driven out from among men. His hair got long, it's all disheveled, his nails grew out, and he probably did not smell very great. It's very similar to male leaders after a junior high retreat. <laughs> and then we see this in verses 34 through 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him, who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand 
or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar turns his eyes to God. He's been taken from the highest point of humanity, of human prestige, to the lowest point of earthly existence. And in this, he learns where he needs to fix his gaze. He goes from saying, look what I did, and look at who I am, to look what he's done, and look who he is. And then in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. If such a prideful tyrant as Nebuchadnezzar can be brought to a place to say this, then it should, it should inspire us to pray for our leaders, even the ones who are enemies. In closing, um, sinful pride causes us to build ourselves up and it leads to the worst of humanity. God gives us a different picture with Nebuchadnezzar by tearing him down to bring him to the correct place of humility. More importantly, though, God gives us a picture of the power of true humility with the perfect human. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our hope is in the Most High who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Our hope is in the Most High who also came to earth to show us true humanity and save his people from his, their sins. I'll end with this quote from Alex Kirk. He's an Old Testament professor. He says, When we see the character of God shining in his humility, it humbles us and leads us to praise. Like Nebuchadnezzar and like Jesus, we must humble ourselves to ascend to our full humanity. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I just thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather here, gather here and worship. Thank you for your word. And Lord, even though this was a, a, a sermon I wrestled with with the times, Lord, it is, uh, you know, it is not by chance that this was planned to be spoken this Sunday. And so, Lord, I do want to take this opportunity, as, as we have already, be with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, um, be with those who are ministering and um, coming alongside. And we pray, we just pray, Lord, we trust in your sovereignty and who you are. We just pray this in all in Jesus' name. Amen.